Shalom. Welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I am your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Thank you for joining us. We do appreciate your time in coming with us. Uh, you can comment on the show or suggestions by emailing me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com, the website, jewishsacredaging.com. And um, if you can, hop onto the Facebook page, Jewish Sacred Aging at Facebook. We do appreciate it. Uh, we are, as this is no secret to anybody, especially those of us in the Jewish community, in the midst of radical transformation, transition, change within our community. And uh, we are very delighted to uh, welcome to the microphone and our show today one of the, I'd say one of the prophets, I'm going to use that term, uh, prognosticator, prophets, and observers of this contemporary world in which we live, Rabbi, my colleague Rabbi Jeff Salkin, who is the author of a brand new, just rolling off the presses this month, a book called Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel, and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism. Okay, Jeff. Baruch haba. Welcome. How you doing? Man? Thank you so much. Uh, Repairing Our People, Israel, and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism is my latest book, and it's my 11th book, and I'm very proud of it. Well, first of all, let me cut to the, to the important stuff since we're we're recording this a, uh, a couple of weeks prior. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. And Thank you. <laughs> what's liberal Judaism? How does Jeff Salkin define liberal Judaism in the beginning of the 21st century? Well, Richard, liberal Judaism is not a political adjective, though, in fact, there is a great deal about liberal Judaism that is politically liberal. I define liberal Judaism quite simply. It's any Jewish movement, any Jewish religious movement that's not orthodoxy, which means conservative, reform, uh, it, new age, uh, renewal, reconstructionist, etc. Anything that is outside of the boundaries of orthodoxy. And by the way, I would even have to say increasingly, even modern orthodoxy is moving into that field of liberal Judaism. This the, the book is a tour de force in many ways. It's you. It's your observations based upon uh, your rabbinate, um, which spans basically the our our generation of uh, of of rabbinate. It it hinges on. To be honest, as people should know, it hinges on post October seventh. I think I'm could be safe to say about that because you rewrote the introduction. It's a brand new introduction as a result. And there are several themes that run through this um, this book. And by the way, for my colleagues who are listening to this or adult education people, rabbis, educators, people who are in charge of the adult education committee, mark this book down because uh, it probably could be very useful in an adult education or book club synagogue or organizational book club. And while we're here, Jeff... Amazon, bookstores, the usual places. Amazon correct? is the best place to find it. It's published by Wicked Sun, which is an interesting imprint. And they specialize in books that are somewhat rebellious and somewhat, uh, in some ways, questioning of the norms of contemporary Judaism. Best place to get it, Amazon.com. It's Wicked Sun, S-U-N or S-O-N? S-O-N, like the Wicked Sun of the Passover Seder, but that's a good pun. I like it. Achreinu Achraim. We are responsible for who? 
or for what? Well, the story is really very simple. I found myself on a van going to Jerusalem from Ben Gurion Airport. I thought I lost my luggage. The van driver found my suitcase, restored it to me. I was so overwhelmed to see my luggage again, believing it was lost or destroyed, that I went into my pocket, into my wallet. I pulled out some shekels. I wanted to get these shekels to him. He said, Mazet, tip? What is it? You're giving me a tip? Ain't tip. There's no tip. And then he recited from memory the biblical commandments about returning lost objects to their owners. And then he said, Anachnu achreim, we are responsible. And that moment shook me. And it made me realize that he did not see me as a customer. He saw me as someone with whom he lived in covenant. And as members of this people, we are responsible for each other. And I dare say that he would have done the same thing had uh, the passenger in his van been a, a Gentile as well. The theme that I want to bring in is a sense of communal responsibility. And this flies in the face of what so much of my end of liberal Judaism has touted, which is essentially communal freedom and the ability to, if not to make it up as you go along, but to really be untethered from the sources. He was giving me the sources and saying, we're responsible for each other. And I deeply believe that. Yeah, it, this this story is um, pivotal in the beginning of the book uh, with the van driver and, and actually is that theme runs through the book, as, as, as I alluded to. It's a very, very important thing. But you, you, um, I'll, I'll call them Salkinisms, but you have, you have this line in here. Um, and I, I can't give you the exact page number. Quote, liberal Judaism in America has become a consumer product. Is that the worship of autonomy? Is it, is it, uh, an acquiescence to a particular political party's platforms. What do you, what do you, that's a, that's a talk about wicked son. That's a really interesting statement that the Judaism that we grow up with has become quote, a consumer product. What do you mean? Well, what I really mean is this, it's really deeper than a particular political allegiance or even deeper than autonomy. It's really very simple. Uh, synagogues and Jewish organizations now, but because I live in the synagogue world, are very much concerned with market share. And they are very much concerned that their message will go out in such a way that it will attract members. Well, of course, they have to. That's, that's what the economy demands. But when I say a consumer product, it sometimes feels that we are living in a world in which the consumer is king, and you can buy or, and rent whatever you want. Perfect example, in Florida, where you and I both hang out, we have seen the phenomenon, not even of startup synagogues. I happen to love startup synagogues. We've seen the phenomenon of independent rabbis, independent cantors or whatever, who are just available for life cycle ceremonies, not necessarily bringing people into a community. But these are one-off experiences. We have seen, for example, synagogues that have had to roll back their educational requirements in order to compete with other synagogues that are doing the same. It creates a culture not of excellence, which is what we need, but a culture in which everyone gets what they want. And to quote the Rolling Stones, I would say, you know, you can't always get what you want, but if you try some time, you'll find you get what you need. And we have to give people what they need, and we have to trust people enough to know that they will know what they need. 
So th- th- I want to just pick up on this a little bit, because, again, in the book and what you're just talking about, there seems to be this tension. And maybe this is part of the repairing of the of the needs of the community as a community vis-a-vis the my needs as an autonomous person i can do what i want hence the development of concierge rabbis um that you were alluding to and and you have this uh ross dohat line that you quote in the book which is and he wrote quote faith is an inheritance that you get handed down and have to decide what to do with unquote it's you use that quote in the context of autonomy could you just how do you now at this stage in your rabbin writing this book begin to harmonize the liberal jewish almost worship of personal autonomy these are needs of the community because we're go ahead i think we have to start with the needs of the community and in some ways this pushes me outside of the traditional boundaries of Reform Judaism that has really in many ways been profoundly centered on the needs and the desires of the individual. In some ways, it's pushing me closer to Reconstructionism or classic Reconstructionism or even classic conservative Judaism in allowing the community to have its voice. I struggle with this all the time. I think of the late lamented Israeli intellectual and author Amos Oz, right. who said, we've inherited a household of furniture from the Jewish past, we must now decide what goes into the attic and what goes in the living room. Now, I will have to say that for me, some of the furniture of the Jewish past should wind up on the street. I'm really not interested in the stuff that denigrates women, that denigrates uh, Gentiles. I'm not interested in denigrating people. But one of the things I've learned in my own life is that that stuff that you thought was going to be in the attic winds up in the living room, and the stuff that's in the living room winds up in the attic. And I think it's the voice of the community that helps us figure that out. I don't think Jews can do this alone. And one of the things that I feel very strongly about, especially after October 7th, Richard, is that on October 7th, we Jews realized that we need each other. We need each other for support. We need each other for sustenance, for comfort. But we also need each other in order to do our Jewish stuff. But those communal standards, which we used to have, I think, have bumped smack dab into this concept of, you know, what do you what do you tell me what to do? This is my duties. It's I pay the dues. I can do what I we Everybody who's a congregational rabbi has had this thing of, oh, rabbi, it's easier for the caterer and the band. Can we move the bar mitzvah service to X time or rather than the time that's in this? Because after all, it's my synagogue and I pay the dues. It's this is the the the. The tension that I think is becoming more and more exacerbated, but post October 7th, will, do you think that will significantly change? Or do you think this is, um, six months, a year from now, it'll be business as usual? I think that there's a great deal of emotional strength and power that comes to us out of this raw moment in Jewish history, and I I can't say that too loudly and too strongly, this raw trauma. Well, you you were asked to, uh, this no secret, you rewrote the introduction to this book as a result of the trauma of October the 7th. I I volunteered to do so. Uh, The editors were grateful that I did. 
I realized that while the book was ready to go to print on October 6th, on October 8th, some of it would have seemed tone deaf. Now, the body of the book is the same, but I needed to address, and I'm proud to say this is the first really work in print that addresses what I think post-October 7th American Judaism could look like. I don't, I could. Now, let me say the following about could. You and I remember the horror that happened at uh, Tree of Life Congregation in Pittsburgh in 2018, in October of 2018, when a gunman came in and during the Torah service uh, killed all those people. It was the worst day of American Jewish history, worst single day. That melts in comparison to October 7th. And I remember going to synagogue in the weeks after that, and there was what I called the Pittsburgh bump. Right. More people were coming out. I've experienced a little bit of that now since October 7th. I don't know how quickly that will go away, only because mathematically the trauma is so much deeper. But more than that, the tree of life horror was theologically and existentially a one-off. Yes, there were other, of course, anti-Semitic attacks that occurred. Uh, the, and each of them was devastating. But what we have here on October 7th is an existential crisis for the Jewish people. And I just wrote about this yesterday. Who would have expected, Richard, that the pogrom of October 7th would have instigated a full-blown battle in the American culture wars? And I'm talking about this business with the three college presidents, what's happening on college campuses, and American Jewish parents questioning not so much the value of higher education, but what's the cost-benefit analysis? If they can't keep my kids safe, why am I shelling out $70,000 a year? And not only that, what about our progressive allies? And not only that, what about the churches? So this is a full-blown Kulturkampf, as we would say in German, a culture war and a struggle that we are really in the midst of. And I think we can manage this. But here's the thing, you and I know, it's going to take very strong leadership from the executives and uh, the thought leaders of every single American Jewish movement to make this happen so that it trickles down into American Jewish households. So, Jeffrey, the, you opened the door here, so let's walk through it. The, where are the statesmen who are capable? Because right now the community is totally fractured. Um, and where, are, where are the statesmen? We, 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 we talking before, and for full disclosure for people, Jeff and I are friends and um, when I'm in Florida, we always get together, and um, and this is being recorded on the week uh, right following the death of David Ellenson, Oliver Shalom. Where 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 are the statesmen? You, you say that it's going to require those types of individuals to help repair the Jewish community. Where are they? Well. I want to say something, first of all, in memory of our dear friend, uh, Rabbi David Ellenson, of blessed memory. Uh, David was, as you and I have said, not only a thought leader, not only an intellectual, not only a teacher, not only a man of great academic heft, not only someone with a huge heart, uh, but he was a statesman whose influence yeah. really transcended the movements and the traditional boundaries of American Judaism across the board. Right. Now, do we have those sorts of people? We have people with those capabilities. I dare say that the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, has that capability. He's got the charisma. He's got the presence. 
he has that sense of style and competence that would allow American Jewry, at least liberal American Jewry, to gather behind him. It's really, it's 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 a it's a question of will he? I hope he will. You know, it's again my my love of popular culture is you know. Glinda the Good Witch in uh, The Wizard of Oz saying to Dorothy, you always had the power, my dear. He's got the power, okay? And I'm hoping that he'll do it because he is the envy of most non-Orthodox movements in this country. Now, can it come from secular leaders? Can it come from federation leaders? Can it come from American Jewish Committee? Can it come from ADL? Only in a limited sense because here's what you and I know. All of those secular Jewish organizations are wonderful and they are incredibly useful, but the address for American Jews, forgive me, not a pun, the place where American Jews hang out is still for most American Jews at some time in their lives, the American synagogue, and it's got to come from the synagogues. So to push the Wizard of Oz uh, image a little bit more, um, October the 7th seems to, uh, this seems to be a popular theme now. Pulled back the curtain, um, and we find ourselves, in, at least institutionally, in many cases, alone. How do you think this is really going to be handled? What do you think the implication of is it's this this reality, which is very very real? You alluded to it. We marched for this. We marched for that. We marched for that. Now we're marching alone. This is only what keeps me awake at night. That and consuming cups of coffee after nine, eight, <laughs> 9 p.m. Look, without being funny or cute or glib here, I wrote about this in the Daily News and an open letter to our progressive friends. And I basically said, you heard us. Where have you been? We marched with you. And while on one hand, you should say, well, that was an act of generosity on our parts. We should not have expected anything in return. I would say no. You and I, Richard, we're friends. I don't expect anything from you in return. You pick up the check. I pick up the check. I hang out with you. It's all good. But in strategic alliances, you've got to believe you expect something. So I do not believe that this will cause a recalibration of liberal Judaism in terms of the causes that we work with. But I do think that we're going to have to sit down with our progressive allies especially, for example, what women are now saying about progressive women's organizations and the United Nations that have taken an abysmally long time to deal with what can only be called gynocide. The, the, I, I don't want to nauseate your, your listeners, okay? The, the rape and the systematic abuse of Jewish women and girls in Gaza. We, we, we have a lot to say. We, you know, look, uh, again, another popular culture reference. Okay. You know, we are right now, Ricky Ricardo on I Love Lucy saying, Lucy, you got some splaining to do. These groups got some splaining to do. And we have to be able to say, we will walk with you, but we need to talk about this. This is classic. This has happened to Jews on the left, according to my historical studies, at least since the mid 1800s in Russia where we were left holding the bag. And I'll tell you something else. The risk of being political, you and I, you've talked about this over right, many right, cups right. of soup. My worry is that if a certain person wins, oh yeah, then American Jews 
are going to find themselves in Europe again. And I'm not talking about a Europe of uh, a summer tour. We're going to find ourselves in Romania and Hungary and Germany again, caught between the forces of the extreme left and the forces of the extreme right. And the wake-up call for many American Jews right now is, and I hate to say it, but it's true, much of the Jew hatred that has come out since October 7th has come from the political and cultural left. And you, you want something really ironic? I mean, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, this is not someone who we hang out with politically, and yet she's going to bat for us. So right. here's what I have to say. I don't like hanging out with those people either, but if they're telling the truth, you know, Maimonides said, I think it was Maimonides, who said, you know, accept the truth from whoever says it. We got to be willing to say, all right, on this, I agree with you on anti-Semitism, Israel, I agree with you on abortion and other things. We're going to have to part ways. We need to rethink what our political alliances are going to look like. This is part of the repairing, I would assume, because what you were talking about now, I mean, and my sense uh, in in my knowledge of Jewish history is this is um, this repairing is going to take maybe a generation, maybe a generation um, to reforge some of these alliances on a grassroots level. Um, and that's and you are correct. The wild card is November 2024. Well, it, it's going to go, go, go ahead. No, it's going to take a generation. But here's the other problem. We need leaders to make that happen. Uh-huh. And? And you and I have talked about the, the, the following problem. Every non-Orthodox denomination is suffering a shortage of rabbinical students. Now, Correct. there's a reason for this. If you look at the Pew study, and I write about this in the book, if you look at how young Jews and for that matter, young Christians or whatever, identify themselves as people of religion. We see a diminishing. Why would we think we would not be affected by this? This is just basic sociology. This is the sociology of American religion. So we're going to need the leaders for this. And I'm wondering, okay, I'm just, I'm just spitballing here with you, Richard. I am wondering to what extent October 7th will, and we're not going to know this for for a long time. A while. Actually, shorter than you think. I'm wondering to what extent October 7th might, here's a hopeful thing, might boost the number of people who want to become rabbis in order to provide meaning. Seekers of meaning? We're mm -hmm. all seekers of meaning. To provide meaning and context and comfort and sustenance to American Jews. I, I am willing to believe and I'm willing to hope and willing to expect that a year from now, we might see an uptick in applications to rabbinical schools. One of the flip side of that fears is, given the fraction of the, the fractured nature of the community and this rise in public anti-Semitism, what the flip side of that fear is, will will this drive people away? Will it take so many of our younger people and say, um, "It's not worth it." I will go into investment banking or this, that, and the other thing. And I'm, and we, and you're right. We will not know this. Um, but you, but let me I'm ask you. I'm, all right, Richard, I'm going to gamble right now. If I was going to Vegas right now, <laughs> I would gamble on the power 
of Jewish tenaciousness. Okay. I would gamble on that. But I'll say this as well. Just as a windstorm blows through a forest and will knock off the dead leaves from the trees, leaving the more secure leaves attached to the branches, this windstorm will have done the same thing to American Jews. It's going to be knocking a lot of dead leaves off. But I think that the assimilationist tendency of American Jews might not be as strong as we think it is, only because been there, done that. We've achieved everything we've wanted to in American society. There's nothing to ascribe to anymore. I, I, I live across the water. You live across the water from Palm Beach. No Jew wants to be a wasp anymore. Why should we be wasps when we can live there? Our kids can go to Yale. We've got everything we possibly want. Now, I will say this about the rising anti-Semitism, especially in the Ivies. I don't expect that applications for those schools are going to drop, but I do expect what's going to happen is that many, many American Jews are going to get there and they're going to say to themselves, is this what we wanted? You know, again, well, the words of Peggy Lee, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, is, uh, that okay, all there is. is that all there is? Yeah. And, and Peggy Lee comes into the book too. The, um, look, I live in Philly, uh, and the University of Pennsylvania is on fire right now. Yes, I mean, is. literally on fire. Yes, and it is. And it should we be. Have two, we have two Jewish students who are suing the school, basically saying, uh, my parents are paying $70,000 a year. I'm not even, uh, it's not even safe for me to walk across the quad. Let me say this. I'm going to, I put this in print yesterday, but I'm going to say it even more, more strongly. In these schools, they think there's free speech. There's no free speech. I mean, you can't say certain things about certain groups, whether they're microaggressions or whatever, without paying a serious social or academic price. When it comes to Jews, forget about microaggressions. Richard, these are macroaggressions. If the only group in the world that you're allowed to call for violence against happens to be the Jews. Houston, we got a problem here. And we got to call it what it is. Of course, these Jewish students are right to sue. I mean, look, this whole notion of context, that's, that's, just, that's just an academic fad. You know, that's just, you know, that's just, that's just bullshit. Pardon me. Let's, let me rewind on that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't, right. don't worry about that. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay. I, I, I think what I want to say is this idea that there's context is just, that's just an academic fad we've been playing with this stuff for years that we that this relativism here but no no forget that if you can't guarantee my kids safety in the dorms then you don't deserve seventy thousand dollars or any money or any money this 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 is not rocket science and once again let me remind you we're speaking with rabbi jeff salkin the author of a just being published book called tikkun ha'am Repairing Our People, Israel, and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism, uh, available at the usual suspects, including the great god Amazon. Um, Jeff, the before we start running out of time, I, I just want to just, because the book touches on this, and I think over the course of time, it's going to be even more and more important. Um, and that is the, and you alluded to this, 
before earlier in the show, the liberal Jewish approach to religious education. Um, have we dumbed things down so much that we're sending out young people totally unprepared to deal with the real world? It's not only that we've dumbed things down. By the way, let me just be very clear. In my career that spans four decades, I have encountered amazing rabbis and amazing cantors and Jewish educators. They are doing their best. I don't think they're dumbing things down. But again, market share and the consumer mentality, I am sad that for years we have been begging, cajoling, and even whining to Jewish parents about the need to keep their kids in Jewish education beyond puberty. And many of them have been deer caught in the headlights. And now what's happened is that many of those same parents are texting us and saying, my kids at Brandeis, my kids at Columbia, my kids at Penn, this is what they're saying, what do we do? Right. I think this needs a control alt lead within the souls of American Jewish parents. And I think they have to take on communal responsibility and obligation and saying that our kids need to be able to defend themselves as Jews in life. And it's not only about Israel. It's about, well, how do you handle the fact that your roommate is going to be a devout atheist and is going to say, why are you involved in this patriarchal religion in the first place? It's going to be all sorts of threats to one's personal identity and Jewish identity. My hope is that this will create a rebooting of a teen education across the board. My hope is that this will inspire the creation of better and more versatile Israel education stuff that's going to have to be online because it changes every week or so. And it's going to require, again, local religious leadership to make it happen. And it's going to really require my colleagues to stand up to Mr. and Mrs. Goldberg and Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz and say, we need for you to covenant with us to make ourselves into a learning community. Now, here's what I want to say about that community thing, because you touched on it. Many people, Richard, think that community is who I hang out with and who I feel good about. It's where my friends are. I have a much more, to quote the late Columbia University sociologist Amitai Etzioni, more of a communitarian idea about this, where community means that I make contributions to the common good in order to enjoy the fruits of this. I think communities should be, again, quote cheers sometimes you got to go where everybody knows your name but it's more than that it's we're all in this together and the togetherness must be about lifting the spirit of the jewish people yes and tikkun ha'am repairing our people which is a deliberate mischievous rhyme of tikkun olam repairing the world i i i would suggest first of all um a plug for um the Association of Reformed Jewish Educators, because in a previous podcast, we had the uh, head of that, Stacy Rigler, Rabbi Stacy Rigler, and, and they're really, really committed to to really doing exactly what you said, and is a very hopeful, fighting the fight about, you know, market share and sometimes internal synagogue politics. 
But I'd also suggest, and we have a podcast coming up next week with these people, that the generation of grandparents uh, may be a key player in the revitalization of this transmission of Jewish heritage and Jewish community. Uh, because we can make the case, as we do in Jewish Sacred Aging, that our generation, uh, the baby generation, may be one of the last really committed Jewish-oriented generations able to transmit stories and history to their our grandchildren. And that link of grandparent to grandchild is a sacred link. Um, it's funny that you say the sociologists have said this. When they look at the influence on kids, they discovered that grandparents have only a slightly smaller impact on kids than the parents themselves. Uh, and uh, I would suggest in many families, it could be more. It could be more. So in that sense, I, uh, I think this is something, again, we're, in, we're banking on something. That, but I, I have faith in that because I, I really do think that October the 7th may have been a, a battery charge to, in many cases, the grandparent generation to say, listen, I, I have to really make sure that my grandchildren are secure in their Jewish identity. Um, and I'm starting to even see this in my, in my own family, but, but we're, we're going to run out of time, but I, I got to ask you one last question. We're not going to get to the music stuff and Franz Rosenzweig and who makes an appearance in the book. Yes, he does. Um, God, lo- God love him. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Some- <laughs> you talk, we talk about education. We talk about anti-Semitism. And, and, and the power and ports of the synagogue is still the central Jewish institution in American Jewish life. But we always seem to forget about God and the spiritual component of what other than community. And if it's all, if it's just community, Kohakavod and we'll start reading Mordecai Kaplan again. But in the welcoming of those people into the building for Shabbat or holidays, and they pray the prayers, many of whom don't even believe the words that they're praying. In this post-October 7th recalibration of the American Jewish community, where's the role of spiritual? Where's the role of God? Where's the role of the sacred in all of this, Jeff? You know, it's an interesting question, Richard, because the times where I've gone to synagogue after October 7th and I found myself engaged in the prayers, all of a sudden I found that the poetry and the prose of the prayers was speaking to me more loudly than I have ever experienced them before, who has not made us like the nations of the world. And and Alenu, and I, I say to myself, this is not the kind of chosenness that God wanted. If God loves us. I feel that love. Mm. I feel that the face of God sometimes is hidden, sometimes in eclipse. People have said to me, how could God have allowed October 7th, which is just merely a third cousin of how could God have allowed the Shoah? How could God have allowed the pogroms in Kishinev? As a religious educator, I feel called upon to 
revise people's perhaps immature views of what God is, that God is Superman, that God could have stopped this. No, in fact, I would say where the spirituality is is simply this, that the Holy One of Being endowed humans with the twin inclinations, the Yetzir HaTov, the good inclination, and the Yetzir HaRa, the evil inclination, and those struggle within. I'm now going to up that, say that every ideology also has a Yetzir HaTov and a Yetzir HaRa. Every nation has within its story those dueling inclinations. And then what God calls us to do is, yes, tikkun, to repair, to even repair the inner life of individuals. You know, there is a uh, holy trinity in this notion of tikkun, which comes from uh, the marketing slogan of an international reform Jewish youth organization. Tikkun olam, to repair the world. Tikkun ha'am, the title of my book, to repair our people. Tikkun atzmi, to repair myself. And I think that we have institutions that deal very well with tikkun olam. We've majored in that in liberal Judaism. Tikkun ha'am, repairing our people. That has often been the signature of secular organizations and needs now to be part of the synagogue agenda. It's only the synagogue, only prayer, only worship, only study that has allowed us to repair the broken inner pieces of ourselves. And I think we can't have one without the others. Rabbi Jeff Salkin, um, the author of Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism. Um, thank you very much for your time. Lots more to discuss. We'll do that hopefully in a couple of weeks at 2Js. I mean, and uh, um, just stay safe, stay well. You too, buddy. Uh, and uh, good luck with the book. And really good and luck. Rest, and to everyone here, I know that you'll be watching this weeks later, but I hope everyone has had a good and as light-filled a Hanukkah as possible. To all of you, thanks, Jeff. All right. To all of you, thank you very much for joining us on today's edition of Secrets of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. If you'd like to help support the work in these podcasts, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, click on the conveniently located donate button, and just follow the prompts. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor to these podcasts, also just email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the studios of Lubeckin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and a huge shout out to our producer, Steve Lubeckin. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and I look forward to seeing you on our next edition of Seekers of Meaning from Jewish Sacred Aging. And until that time, please take care of yourself, everybody. Take care of the people that you love. Hold them, embrace them, and most of all, be kind to one another. Buddha, Shalom. Shalom.